I was told uh, to, Todd, uh, I guess Dan Billen told Todd to make sure and tell me to sing a song this morning to help him wake up. I'm sorry, Dan, I'm not going to have any more silly songs from Larry. Uh, <laughs> going to spare you for that. I could do have some pictures today if they work, and so maybe that will help you stay awake a little bit. Um, not going to review the whole aspect of First Peter that went through last time, introducing the book and introducing the life of Peter, but um, these are these pictures you maybe remember from the last time that uh, I talked. Um, of course, uh, we don't know exactly what Peter looked like, but I like to think of him as being that one in the upper left-hand corner with the strong chin, the the big fisherman, the bodyguard of Jesus, the one who was right there in the midst of everything that happened and was a, a definitely a leader among the apostles, among a, a key leader in the church there. Uh, the one in the lower right-hand corner, a little bit difficult to say, see, uh, uh, Peter on the Appian Way, according to legend, uh, was leaving Rome uh, as Nero was in, uh, bringing in his persecution and And according to legend, he was on the Appian Way leaving Rome, and he had a vision of Christ. Again, it's a legend. We don't have this anywhere in Scripture. But he uh, uh, had a vision of Christ, and he asked Jesus, Quo vadis, where are you going? And Jesus pointed back towards Rome, that he was going there to be crucified. And Peter then turned around, according to legend, and went back to um, Rome in order to Take his place. Let's see if I can get this to work. Nope. Ah, yes, it does. Just going to know which button to push. And uh, Peter was, uh, um, uh, according to legend, he was crucified upside down. He didn't f- consider himself worthy to be uh, crucified the same way that Jesus had been uh, crucified and asked to be crucified upside down as a result. Um, the book of First Peter, at the end of the book, we find that uh, Peter is writing from Babylon, and possibly it really was Babylon. Uh, Babylon was a decimated city. There wasn't hardly anything left of it. It was a very small village, very few people living there. And I guess there's a possibility that Peter did get all the way over into uh, Iraq into Persia and, and did that. We do know that Peter did a lot of traveling around, but I think it's probably much more likely most scholars tend to think that he was probably using the word Babylon there at the end of First Peter to represent a sort of a code word for Rome and that he was actually writing from Rome. He was writing to... Writing to the... Uh, um, the, uh, the Christians who had been scattered. And uh, you find out in the very first two verses of the, of the book that he's writing to the Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And that, um, of course, we know from Paul's writings in Acts that he came up on uh, his missionary tour, his second missionary tour, got over here to Troas, got his... The Lord didn't allow him to go north into Bithynia, and he got a vision of the the Macedonian call, and instead he traveled on over into Macedonia and brought the gospel into Greece and into Macedonia as a result. And, of course, uh, Rome and Italy is further on over here. We can even see it at this point on this map, and that's where Paul and Peter both ended up eventually at the end of their lives. The... um, 
Um, the book of First Peter was written to these Christians in the dispersion who had been dispersed because of the persecution that occurred in uh, Jerusalem. With the, with the it started up with Stephen and then led to the, uh, the not only the martyrdom of Stephen but then to the martyrdom of of James, who was one of the three, along with John and Peter, who were the closest disciples to Jesus. And the persecution became widespread from Jerusalem, and the Christians from Jerusalem dispersed then into different parts of the world. Some of them ended up in these places like Bithynia and Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia. And they, um, so the, Peter calls them uh, the dispersed Christians chosen to be exiles. They were um, in these other countries. And yet he's also writing to us, too, isn't he? What he says to them, it was a letter that was to be circulated among the churches in those regions, and it comes down to us as well. It's, uh, so we have a message here that's very appropriate. In a lot of ways, Mike just summarized it earlier as he was talking about some of the things that are going on in our church right now and the meaning and purpose that we have in suffering and in the trials that we go through in life. Um, Particularly, he's talking about in this, in this book of First Peter about suffering that comes in regard to persecution. But it does have to do also with any kind of suffering that affects us. We will find that, uh, that there are a common experience of suffering in this world is, is something that, uh, that we need help with. We, not as a crutch, but we need a real reason for hope. Not a hope in hope's sake, but a, and not a faith in, for faith's sake, but a hope and a hope that is real, that has a real basis. And so Peter starts out here with, uh, here he's trying to comfort these Christians in the dispersion with the, with the persecutions and things that they have going on. And how would you start out a letter in that case? If you were writing to a bunch of people, if you were meeting with somebody, how would you start out if you were trying to comfort somebody, trying to console them with the difficulties that they go through? I think, think it's interesting that Peter starts out with an exclamation of, if I can pull it up here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This word blessed is a kind of a difficult word to translate in a lot of ways. In Hebrew, it comes from the word barak. It means, uh, it's not translated blessing. In, when I, in Arabic, when we used to want to say thank you to people, we would say barakalafik, which means um, may, God, may God bless you, in effect. And when somebody sneezes in this country, we say uh, God bless you. A lot of people still do say that. How can we bless God? Interesting thought. How could and Peter... Uh, Peter does say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed has the meaning of, of praise, to praise somebody. In, in Greek, it, the uh, word is actually eulogia, the word that we get the word eulogy from. When we eulogize somebody at a funeral, we're praising them, we're thanking them, we are lifting them up, exalting them, talking about the good things that we want to remember about them. And in a sense, we are do, doing the same thing for God when we bless him. And we'll see at the end of this passage too, there's, there's a special way that we bring blessing to God through what we go through as well. But it contains, in your NIV, it may start out with praise be to the God 
husband, father, and that's one of the meanings of blessed. The, the NIV version shows one of the potential meanings out of blessed, but it does have, it's a multiple, there are several meanings there, and, and uh, that is the difficulty sometimes of translating something. In the first, uh, we have, right here in these first two verses, we have uh, the God the Father and God the Son working in tandem. And God is expressing, working through his mercy. Mercy is his motivation for what he does. We've known this all the way along. There's a good basis for this in the Old Testament, even going back to how God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses wanted, asked God to reveal himself. He, uh, uh, he passed before Moses and he announced himself. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So through the Old Testament, we have many pronouncements that God is merciful. But it isn't until we get to the New Testament that we learn the full essence, the full meaning of this aspect of God being merciful. When we learn finally what it really costs God to be merciful, how in bringing his son and sacrificing his son for us, we get, we, that's what it costs God for him to overcome the judgment, the judgment that was due to us for our lawless rebellion and the judgment that we rightly deserved. His mercy cost us the life of his son. In these first two, these, this verse three, we see God the Father and God the Son working together in tandem. But in the very first two verses, we had the triunity of God working together. We can see that right there. We had uh, all that happened to the Christians and the dispersion was happening, as Mike prayed earlier, according to God's foreknowledge. Nothing happened to them that he didn't know about already. And it was happening according to the Holy Spirit, by the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit setting us aside for those particular works that God had assigned for us, making us holy, preparing us for that work that he has for us. And then the purpose was to obey Jesus Christ and to enter into a deeper relationship with, with God the Son through our obedience to God, our obedience to Christ in the midst of our suffering and all that we go through. We find the, the three working in tandem throughout these first 12 verses of First Peter. You'll find uh, that God is mentioned three times and that the Father is mentioned two times. That, the, that Jesus Christ is mentioned seven times and that the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. You know, there are a lot of dead hopes in this world. We have been born again to a living hope, it says there in verse 3. And there are a lot of dead, dead hopes in this world, aren't there? There's a lot of things that we oftentimes put our hopes in that are actually, unfortunately, dead hopes. Um, I know there have been times in my life that I have put my hope in my health. As I continue to age and my body uh, gets older and I just can't run the, the six-minute miles anymore that I used to and, and Stan Langhofer beats me when we run in the, real badly, even when we run in the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the uh, rescue mission run. And I, I'm just learning that my body is giving out and I'm coming to the awareness that if the Lord tarries, I'm going to need a new body someday. All of us will. Um, and if we put our hope in our health, it's not going to last, is it? 
The Arabs have an expression, they say, illy fats mats. It kind of rhymes, doesn't it? Illy fats mats. It's a good expression. It means uh, uh, whatever is past is dead. Whatever has passed has died. Illy fats mats. And there are a lot of dead hopes in this world. We can put our hope in, in children, but do we really know for sure that our children are going to walk with God? We don't. Uh, Bethany gave us a book a while back, uh, handed out to those in Sunday school, about jumping ship. And there's just no assurances that our, our children are going to grow up with our, with our values that we have. There are things that we can do to improve the odds, but to base our hopes on our children, it's not a hope that we, should, it's not a hope that we can rest assured in. Um, power, intellect, wealth, reputation, parents, all these things, and eventually will, will, will fail us. I have a picture here of uh, Buddha's grave. Buddha, of course, uh, uh, is in northern, northern India. Buddha brought forth a, an ethical teaching that uh, really, held, even today, holds much, uh, most sway through Asia. Um, he didn't have a lot to say about eternal life. He, he seemed to th- uh, believe in karma, the Hindu principle of karma, and the recycle, the rebirth cycle. But uh, his grave is with us. If anybody's basing their hope upon Buddha, then it's a dead hope. Muhammad's grave is in Medina, Saudi Arabia. He, uh, this is a picture here of the grave, actually, the, the grave site, and that's the big casket there, the big, um, I guess, places where he's buried. That's where Muhammad himself is buried. The, one, the smaller one off to the side is Abu Bakr, his father-in-law, which was the first caliph. He wanted to be buried beside Muhammad. But we have the grave of Muhammad. It's a dead hope. If, we, if a person were to follow that, in fact, Muhammad is interesting. He required that all Muslims, whenever they say his name, and you'll hear Muslims do this today even, they always say a phrase after his name, Subhanallah, which means uh, peace be unto him. And in fact, it's a prayer for Muhammad that he would have peace. He wasn't able to have even assurance of, of eternal life himself, and he asked for Muslims to pray for his peace. Here we've got the, uh, the grave of of uh, Darwin in Westminster Cathedral. Um, Again, a a dead hope. Darwin, um, in writing about the creation and spiritual things, and he was a a self-professed agnostic, and he said, I feel deeply that the whole subject is too profound for human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton. Let each man hope and believe what he can. Now, there's something to get up in the morning with, isn't there? (laughs) Let each man hope and believe what he can. No, I I think if we are having to just simply hope and believe what we can, if we're simply having to to hope and hope for hope's sake, it's not something that's going to get us very far. Wish these pictures came out a little bit better there. Light, it doesn't show up quite as much. I'd love to have a headstone like that. Uh, that's Karl Marx's tomb, and that's his. That's a head of, on the top. Uh, now, there's a bust that you need stand in your house. Uh, I, do you have Do you have one of Karl Marx? Uh, <laughs> don't have that one, Teresa. Okay. Um, at the top of 
the, the inscription at the top of his uh, tomb says, uh, Workers of all lands unite. Yeah, that's a good one. And the inscription on the bottom says, The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Wow. If we put our hope in politics, the politics of change, we're going to be disappointed eventually. We need a hope that's more sure, something that we can trust in, something we can hang our hat on. And fortunately, we have that from God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, where can we turn for a real reason for hope? All hopes fail. All other hopes eventually lead to despair. The proof of God's promise to us is the resurrection. That was what he hinged everything on. The proof was that he would rise after three days, that he would be able to show that he really did have authority to say the things that he said and to promise the things that he had promised. I think it's good for us every once in a while. We've just passed through Easter and You've probably viewed some films about the crucifixion and the resurrection during, this, during the Easter time. Um, I'm sure, and we've reflected on the Easter story. It's always good to keep in mind, though, the evidences for our faith and the resurrection is one of the key things. The resurrection and prophecy, and prophecy is in the next couple of verses after verse 12, excuse me, verses 11 and 12. We'll get to that another week. But right now, the resurrection is, is the key evidence for our faith, the key reason for our, our hope. A lot of reasons why we be, can believe in the resurrection. First of all, Jesus' execution and torture was public. Everybody knew about it in Jerusalem at that time. They all saw it. It wasn't done in a corner someplace. It was public for everybody to see. His friends, his enemies, those who were sitting on the fence, Everybody knew what had happened in Jerusalem. It was, the disciples were scared to death. They were, they were in great fear. Uh, the picture to the right, which you can't see again very well, is, is Peter sitting in the courtyard and being questioned by uh, people about whether he is a disciple of Jesus. And of course, we know the story that he denied Christ three times, but he wasn't the only one. His story was highlighted because he was considered to be the bodyguard, the strongest one, the leader. And his, his betrayal just indicated what everybody else was going through. They all betrayed him. They were all confused and fearful, scared for their lives, certainly not able to do anything like a Passover plot or anything like steal the body. There was verification of death at the time of Jesus. The Roman soldiers verified him. They weren't going to take him off that cross until he was dead. And just to make sure, they pierced him with a sword. They put a, not a sword, a spear. They put into his side, and blood and water came out separated. Another sign of death. There was the stone tomb, a tomb that was hewn out of stone that had only one entrance, one exit, only one way in or out. And it was being guarded. The Jews went to the, um, to the Roman authorities, went to Pilate, and said, We need a guard. Or the, the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate told them, a guard you have, now go. And he gave them a guard unit. A guard unit was usually a, a group of at least four soldiers. They were taught they were the best equipped soldiers at the time for hand-to-hand fighting. They were the best equipped, the best trained. They were meant to, each man was meant to guard four square yards back-to-back. They could protect each other in hand-to-hand fighting. They were unbeatable. 
There were two things that they could be put to death for. One was abandoning their post. A second was for falling asleep at their post. And so we have this miracle, the earthquake, the stone moves and breaks the seal. Oh, did I mention the seal? The stone had been sealed. The soldiers arrived at the scene. They went, verified, make sure everything was okay. They, they put us, they, the body was there. Everything was ready. They sealed it. They put a big, a big clay pack in the middle. They had rawhide strips going out to the side and clay packs around the edges, the stamp of the Roman Empire on the middle of it. And if anybody broke that seal, the whole authority of the Roman Empire would have been brought against them. Uh, they were meant to guard that place. And yet when the miracle occurred and the stone was rolled away to reveal that the tomb was empty, they didn't know what to do. If they stayed there, they had the, the, the body was gone. Who would believe them? They would be executed for that. And so they took their risks, they abandoned their post, and they went, not to Pilate, they went to the Jewish authorities. And they asked the Jewish authorities, what do we do? How can? And the Jewish authorities told them, if you will put out the word quietly that this while you were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body, then we'll protect you when word comes to Pilate. I sometimes wonder if the, if the, how the, the Roman soldiers felt like they could really trust the Jewish authorities at that time. And I wonder how long they actually lived, if they actually did get protected or not. These fellows who had, had skirted the laws to have Jesus put to death did they really protect these Roman soldiers or not? I wonder how long they actually lived afterwards because they could be put to death for abandoning their post or for falling asleep either way. The way they were usually executed was by burning, burning them alive. What a horrible way to go. What do they do to you, Matt, now if you fall asleep at your post? <laughs> Burn you alive. <laughs> Might wish they had. Um, there was no other viable explanation. You know, they, they, they tried to come up to say that the body had been stolen, but that didn't make sense. The disciples were too scared to do any such thing. The Roman soldiers would have never allowed such a thing to have happened. But there wasn't any other explanation. Uh, the, Jesus was dead. Everybody knew it. They didn't even try any other explanations. Although people since then have tried various other explanations to explain what happened. The people of his time didn't try anything else. The... I think one of the most powerful witnesses for the resurrection is that the women, according to the Gospels, were chosen to be the first witnesses. Because in first century Judaism, well, let's face it, even today, um, women don't get much respect. Uh, the, um, I'm told that uh, in Jewish circles there is something called the aguna, whereby if a woman wants a divorce... Uh, she has to get special. She, the, her husband has to give her a writ of divorcement. If she doesn't have this writ of divorcement in her hands, she can't go out and remarry without it being called adultery. Without the writ of divorcement, she can't get her dowry back. She has no rights. She can't see her children. And even today, in modern day Judaism, it's a phenomena that you can do a web search on as far as the Aguna situation and find out that Jewish men are holding this over their wives, refusing, them to, refusing to give them the writ of divorcement until they sign certain papers giving them what they want. So um, the w- women were not given much, much, uh, uh, much legal basis. In first century Judaism, there are records pr- printed of, of uh, Jewish men praying, thank you that you didn't make me a woman. 
in a Semitic society today, in Arab society, if a woman wants to get a divorce, she has to go out and get 12 male witnesses that, she has, that her husband has not been providing for her. Whereas the, the man, all he has to do is say, I divorce you before a judge, and it's done. A woman's witness is not considered to be worth very much. And yet the Gospels, knowing this, knowing what life was like in first century Judaism, they chose to bring out that it was the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. If you were writing a story yourself to try to present the best case forward for the resurrection and for the proof of it, you wouldn't have written a story in first century uh, Christianity or Judaism that where the women were the first witnesses. I find it interesting that Paul, when he's talking in 1 Corinthians 15 about all the witnesses for the resurrection, he talks about all the resurrection appearances and he doesn't mention the women himself. I'm not sure why that would be, but uh, for whatever reason, he doesn't. He talks about 500 brethren at one time seeing Jesus, but, and he talks about the apostles all seeing him, but he doesn't mention the women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Mary the, the mother of Joseph, uh, the, other, other, the other women who were there at the time, Salome, I think that's one of the best evidences that we, they, the, the writers simply recorded what happened and let the truth fall where it may, let the chips fall where it may. They weren't concerned about whether, what people would think of it. They were intent on telling the true story of the resurrection. And then we have the multitude of witnesses, 500 brethren at one time. Lots of people had seen them. Like I say, I wonder where the, where the um, Roman soldiers were, where they ended up. Uh, according to legend, according to the story, Pilate later on became a Christian and trusted the Lord. Our hope was based upon an act in history. It's not upon an ethical teaching. It's not a hope for change. It's not a, it's not a political win. It is, a, it is an act of history, something that actually occurred. With, and what we've been promised... Is an inheritance that will not, that can't be taken from us. It can't be broken. It'll never die. It won't be. It can't be defiled. It won't fade away. It's reserved. It's held back in heaven. It's held for us. It's being guarded in heaven for us. I have a picture here. This uh, is a, a, a line drawing, a sketch by John Keats. Some of you may know of his poem, uh, "An Ode to a Grecian Urn." It's one of the most, most uh, it's a poem you can find in any high school uh, literature book almost. And in that poem, he talks about several things. He talks about beauty uh, at the very end. I'm not sure if he really knew what he was talking about there. But he also talks about immortality. And, and, and in it, he's describing this, this Grecian urn, this centuries-old urn. And there are several pictures on the urn that he's describing and he talks about, for example, that there's a, a young man there who's so near to his bride, to his love, and wanting to kiss her, but he, he can't. He's frozen in time on this urn, and pity of pities, he can't fulfill his desire and kiss the young maiden that he's with. But on the other hand, he should rejoice, because his maiden will never, she'll never die, she'll never grow old, she will, she will be forever young, and so will he, happy, happy youth. They will remain forever happy, happy. And don't we always look for something like that that is imperishable, something that can't, that can't pass away, that will never grow old? 
It's our yearning, our desire, but we have something better than a Grecian urn to represent that. We have the promise of God. We are protected. By the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is our inheritance reserved in heaven for us, on earth, God the Father, God the Son, are using our faith, our trust, to protect us until we come to the promised salvation that has yet, not yet been revealed. Our faith is working in tandem with God's power to preserve us, to save us, to guard us. The two are working together. God's power is working on our behalf, but there's something we need to do too, and that is to keep our faith strong. You might ask, how can I keep my faith strong? Either you have it or you don't, right? Well, no, it does seem like there are some things that we can do, we can do to prepare. And before you hit the crisis, before you hit the time of persecution, before the, the things start, before your body begins to fail you, before, before your hopes begin to fade, it's good to have some of this sorted out and do what you can to strengthen your faith. Reading scripture regularly, we've talked about. Uh, reviewing the facts of the resurrection. Things like Easter help us to do that at least once a year. It would be good to do it even more often. To uh, review prophecy. To look at what God has promised in times past. In times past, how he knew the future. How he fulfilled it. He brought, how, he, how God, we see God's foreknowledge. We, these things can strengthen our faith and that can help to protect us until we come to that promise of salvation that is yet to be revealed. Notice that it's yet to be revealed. It's a future time. It will be revealed in the last time. Here we're not talking about the salvation that comes with salvation from the penalty of sin, the consequences of sin, Important as that is, we're not talking about salvation from the presence of, excuse me, from the power of sin so much. Um, although that is, in a way, kind of hinted at here as well, as we, have, as we strengthen our faith, as we walk in tandem with Christ, as we obey him through faith, then we, we are saved from the power of sin in this life as well. But here we're talking especially about a future salvation, a time when our bodies will be redeemed, a time when we'll be given new bodies. I was uh, a while back uh, talking with a colleague uh, with MediShare, and uh, he was talking about how he couldn't wait for his new body, how uh, he would be able to, at that point, if he wanted to go skiing, he could just zap and go you know, right to Colorado and, and be there and do it. I, I guess that wasn't, I'd never thought of it that way, that I wouldn't have to take a bus or a plane or something to go skiing. But, uh, and I think that there'll be more to life at that point than thinking about what, what I can most enjoy. I'm sure that the Lord will have uh, things for me to do that will be meaningful and purposeful, that will bring me the greatest joy. But there is something special about those bodies that will not be restricted to space and time and will not decay, and that's a future salvation that we're looking forward to, a salvation from from the presence of sin at some point. In this we greatly rejoice, this salvation, Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And at this point, I want to say, whoa. Wait a second. Rejoice sounds good, but distressed, or I think um, some other translations use the word grieved. 
There's nothing Pollyannish about this. This is, this is not power of positive thinking. This isn't forgetting that there are real trials, that we're living in a real life, that there's reality around us. There is reality. And yet, it's interesting how little is said. Although the persecution was going on, there is, it's interesting how little was said about that persecution at the time. What, um, you know, Paul was very hesitant to bring it up, although we do have eventually, as he's trying to defend his apostleship, a description of some of the things that he went through. We know that the Jews persecuted the Christian church. That's why they had to flee and went into all those far-flung regions. We know that, uh, the, the, that constantly, there were, that while the Christians were under the umbrella of Judaism, they were part of a recognized religion and had protection from the Roman Empire, but there was always a, a, an attempt to bring in a wedge between Judaism and Christianity to, um, so that Christianity would not be looked at as a sect of, of Judaism but would be a separate religion on their own. And when that did eventually happen under Nero, at that point then Christianity was no longer a protected religion and persecution really went on. We have um, uh, under the Emperor Domitian, a very far-flung empire-wide persecution that happened to the church. We have letters uh, before that between a couple of uh, between Trajan and Pliny, uh, descri- describing persecution in Bithynia and what to do when uh, people were brought forward who were known as Christians, who were uh, who were uh, fingerprinted as, or or uh, pointed to as being Christians, and what he should do is asking for advice, and and uh, Pliny says basically that. What I have done, what I've, I've never had experience with this before, but what I've chosen to do is I ask them if they're a Christian. If they say they are, then I ask them, to, you know, are you sure you know that you're not protected under the Roman Empire? Are you sure that you're a Christian? He'll do this three times. Uh, if they, after reminding them three times that they can be executed for not being a part of, a, of an endorsed religion, then um, um, if they do renounce their faith, and will go out then and sacrifice to the gods of the Roman Empire, they could then be spared. But if not, they, then Pliny did go ahead and rule for their execution. And he was basically asking Trajan, is that okay? Is what I'm doing okay? And Trajan said, yeah, that's, that's, that's good policy. That's what we followed, and, and yeah, that's okay to do. So we know that those rules were in place even before the letters between Trajan and Pliny of that, of that sort of thing. Persecution was going on, and yet when the... With the, uh, and yet here Peter talks about them, about distressed, grieved by various trials. He mentions suffering seven times in the book of First Peter. Um, one verse I might just look at real quickly, um, actually verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. But they make light of it, in a way. They consider that the sufferings of this present age, it reminds you kind of of, of Paul, doesn't it? Talking about this slight and momentary affliction. Um, they consider that the sufferings of this present age not really worth considering. Con- compared to the glories that were coming.
So you greatly rejoice. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I like this little picture here. It even moves. I can't believe it. Um, If you can see the fire up there. Uh, it's, they're smelting gold, and it's very appropriate that, that um, Peter uses this illustration of the refining of gold here, uh, that the furnace of affliction, the furnace of, of suffering, brings about the refinement of the gold in our lives, the refinement of our faith, the refinement of our lives, because, um, number one, that was in a common experience with, with, uh, with, with Jews and throughout the book of First Peter, he is identifying the Christian church with the Jewish nation and it was the common experience of the Jewish nation. They had been through suffering and trials before. But also uh, in this area in, to which Peter is rising, writing out of Asia, has anybody heard of, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but have you heard of Croesus or Croesus? The, uh, uh, the gold of Croesus, richer than Croesus. Croesus. That was the area there in Sardis, which was in Asia, where the where refining gold was especially perfected. And he brought out; he was the first to introduce bimetallic uh, currency uh, coins. He was able to uh, refine gold so well, uh, and they created coins to pay people based upon uh, the gold standard. The so when he's writing to these Christians in the dispersion in Asia and Bithynia and, and Cappadocia and Pontus, all these places, Galatia, um, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God proves our faith through the suffering that we go through. And back to the original, we started out verse 3 with saying that blessed be God, the Father. And this is how we bring blessing to God, the Father. He will be blessed by the proof of our faith. This will occur when Jesus is revealed, when, we, when finally the bride of Christ is revealed in all her glory with her faith refined. The cosmic battle in the meantime wages, but our faith is being refined. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Interesting that Paul, Paul Peter, Peter changes the uh, pronoun here, and he doesn't include himself. And though we have not seen him, would not make sense though, does it? Because Peter had seen Jesus. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter loved him as well. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter answered three times, you Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Likewise, those of us who have not seen Jesus, we love him. And though we do not see him now, but believe in him, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We are linked to Jesus through the apostles. In John seventeen twenty through 26, Jesus prayed for those who would believe through the word of the apostles. It's a fact that we have never seen Jesus ourselves, past or present, but we will in the future. Nevertheless, we love him now and believe in him now. And somehow this present love and belief in him causes us to rejoice 
with him now with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Reminded of the, uh, the, the part there in the line of the witch in the wardrobe when uh, Mr. Beaver announces to Peter and uh, Susan and Lucy and Edmund that Aslan is on the march. And Peter and Susan and Lucy have a wondrous response at the time, partly tinged with fear, but also a sense of love, even though they don't have any clue who Aslan is at that point. Edmund, on the other hand, his heart isn't right with God at that point. And he, to him, he's just left with fear and a sense of judgment. That's all that he has out of the, the naming of Aslan. Perhaps this is the most telling marker on your current spiritual condition of the status of your faith is your response to the name of Christ and what he's done for you. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This last verse, verse 9, souls could be translated cells or lives. But in other words, it's the total you. Romans eight twenty two and 23, salvation is from the consequences of sin. We have the new birth in verse 3. We have salvation from the power of sin, guarded by God's power in verse 5. And we have salvation from the presence of sin at the last time and at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verses 5 and 7. Faith is the only condition, faith in Christ. Not faith in faith, not hope in hope, but faith in Christ, in his resurrection, in his ability to perform what he's promised. This is our common experience of suffering. If you'll bear with me, I have a letter here from some friends of ours that we know personally. Um, some of you may have heard of them or may know them. Uh, we call them the Glads. It's a pseudonym. It's not their real name. Um, Boaz and Ruth, they call themselves. And they write uh, in this letter that we received here just a few days ago, Ruth and I want to thank you for praying for us and for our ministry during the last two weeks. Everything went well except for what happened at the beginning of the trip. I'm not sure if you have seen TV reports, read in the newspapers, or heard about it from someone. It was about 4.30 p.m. when my cell phone registered a message. I didn't hear the message because I was in the middle of a meeting until about 7 p.m. The message was from my wife, Ruth, who was attending another meeting just for ladies. She informed me to come and pick her up later that evening. To my surprise, when I got to the meeting location, I found the apartment closed and the light was shut off. I called my wife. Her cell phone rang, but there was no answer. I then called another lady, but received a no-signal message. In about five minutes or so, I received a call from my wife. She was calling from a bathroom in the main police station. She told me that she and all the ladies, there were 17 adults and a baby, were arrested. The meeting was for Christian ladies from different countries to get together for fellowship, prayer, and to learn each other's culture. Their time was great, and all have been blessed and encouraged as they shared their testimonies and studied some Bible topics. The Christian ladies served national dishes and recipes. Mint tea was served all the time. The ladies started meeting on Thursday, March 26th, and ended by their arrest at 5 p.m. on the 28th while they were having tea and coffee. At that time, five police cars, three small and two big vans, arrived with about 16 police people, policemen in plain clothes who entered the meeting, apartment by force, just like one of the Hollywood movies. Hundreds of people gathered in front of the building to find out what was going on. Was it drugs, prostitution, terrorism, or what? It's just Bibles. 
Christian books and videos were confiscated. Even the verses on the walls were retained by the police, who after they checked the names, the IDs, and the passports, arrested all and took them into the main police station. For the foreign ladies, the interrogation lasted from 5 p.m. Saturday to about 3 in the morning Sunday and to about 5 a.m. for the national Christians. By the way, the country's Islamic law prohibits Muslims to change their religion and also prohibits evangelism. The police tried hard to accuse the foreigners of evangelizing the national ladies. On the other hand, all the national ladies testified that they accepted Christ Jesus before they met these foreigners. Finally, at about 4 o'clock Sunday morning, March 29th, the police decided to deport the five foreigners immediately. My wife was not deported but was kept with all the other nationals until about 5 a.m. when all were freed and told that they would be called back for more interrogation. The national Christian ladies were very encouraged when they met their husbands, family members, and three Christian men from another city who came to support, console, and strengthen them. Even though our ladies went through a hard and scary time, none of them denied their faith in Jesus. Actually, they encouraged each other while they were interrogated. I was glad to see my wife in good spirits and ready to continue our ministry in our dear country. What happened is history, and we are now back home safely. Even though our real names are clearly in the police files because the police asked each wife to name whom she was married to, what can we say except thank you, God, for your church in our country? It is strong and growing in spite of difficulties. God will be blessed. His bride will reflect him. The gold will be refined. And we will bring blessing to him. I know it's hard to get excited about a future salvation, a future body, the promises that are coming to us, perhaps. Most of us aren't ready to let go of this life, certainly. I know I'm not. And yet... Salvation is more than future, it's now, it's also past. Have you experienced the new birth? Do you have a living hope? Do you find yourself naturally loving Christ? If you're not sure, talk with somebody today before you go home. Don't let this moment pass. And if you already do know him, if you do love him, are you facing trials? Do you find yourself still able to rejoice? This isn't a Pollyanna approach, as we said before. It is the, it's not the power of positive thinking or a denial of real problems. Grief isn't to be smothered. Nevertheless, in the midst of your grief, take time to review what God in triunity has done for you. Put the present in the context of the future. There are several people here who would love to pray with you and support you, console you, strengthen you as Boaz talked about. If you'd like to share your grief, pray for healing, we'd love to pray with you. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Thank you that we have such a real basis for hope. Lord, uh, help us to keep our trust in you and to keep growing in you. To experience that joy that comes with obeying you. In Jesus' name. Amen.